Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live multi-speed technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I am so excited to do our Christmas episode. It We take some time every year to talk about Christmas and the generosity that comes with it because you can feel in the air increased generosity. And so we've got an exciting show coming up for you based around Christmas and what you might do for the tech geek in your holiday. But as always, we start out with our feedback. Andrew writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. I have a two terabyte dual boot drive with Windows 10 and Ubuntu on it. The Windows install has a large assortment of games for the kids, but the system is suffering lag due to the slow speed of the spinning rust. Since a 2 terabyte NVMe drive is cost prohibitive, I have the idea of making the drive part of a RAID 1 array to speed things up while keeping the cost close to free, since I already have a spare 2 terabyte drive. To prevent having to reinstall Windows all the games and reinstall and save all the game files rather than hunting them down and backing them all up, I hope to simply migrate the existing install onto the RAID array. My motherboard, an Asus B550M, has a native hardware RAID support. However, when I turn the support on, my drives no longer are visible either in the UEFI or the G-Ported GNOME disks when booted into the Ubuntu Live DVD. Do you guys know if it's possible to simply DD or otherwise turn the drive into a RAID configuration without needing to start from scratch? I'm happy to purchase a separate RAID card if it makes life easier. I also have spare drives if using a boot drive to start a software RAID setup would work better. Just looking to try to alleviate the disk I.O. bottleneck of the spinning drive. Many thanks to your show, Heath. So uh, I'll start with, with this, Heath. I, I thank you for writing in. I would tell you that there's a couple different ways you could go about this. The first thing that you could do, uh, the first part that you kind of have to understand is when you go into a RAID setup, essentially what you're doing is obfuscating the actual disk access and only the RAID card is going to see those disks. Then typically on top of that RAID card, it generates virtual disks that the operating system can see and then write to. So if you started with something like, I'm going to say Clonezilla uh, and made a copy of the of the partitions on the drive where your game data is stored or simply booted up the drive and just arsynced all those files off of there, then went back and reprovisioned all of the drive arrays and then dumped all those files back on, that would probably get you there. Where you're going to have, where you're going to, I suspect you're going to run into a little bit of, of, of an issue is if you're trying to pick up what was on a physical disk, if that disk contains things like a boot sector and has different partition flags set um, for booting the system, so on and so forth, I think you might run into some issues there. If you were using earlier versions of Windows, I would have said that you have a high probability of just having that Windows install blue screen. I think these days Windows is a little bit more tolerant about that. Um, and then obviously on a Linux solution, that's where you can start getting into some of the really cool software RAID systems. So you could use, it's not really software RAID, but kind of attacks the same idea. You could use something like LVM to... Uh, 
to gang together some of those disks and get some of your speed back on your on your SSD side and then move all of your data back on there. But uh, DD probably isn't going to work because you if you're if you're if you're taking the the exact bits that are on the drive, well, that is the disk being part of a of a, as a RAID member. So that that's likely not going to work. Our second email comes in from Michael. Michael writes in, says, good morning, Noah. I'm the IT guy at our church and we're moving onto a self-hosted next cloud server on top of Ubuntu. The staff works both from church and home. The problem is when the staff are working from the church, they're no longer able to access the server, but instead are redirected to the Comcast router when using the domain. After doing some research, I came across something called hairpin NAT, but no real answer on how to fix the issue. I've tried running a local DNS server, but no avail. Any ideas on how the staff can access the server? Loves the show. Gives me something to think about during my work week. Thanks for all you do, Michael. So yeah, you're on, you're on the right track. Um, so essentially when we, let's just say we're, we're taking a typical scenario. You've got a public IP address. You've mapped a domain to that public IP address. You reach out to the, the domain. Domain says, here's the public IP. Your computer reaches out to the public IP. Public IP sends you to whatever the service that sits behind it. So in your case, Nextcloud. So generates a Nextcloud instance. When you try to do that from inside of the church, here's what's happening. Your system is saying, hey, I want to reach out to this public IP. And the router says, oh, no, 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 no. We are that IP. We don't need to go anywhere. Right here, here's where you want to go. And and, and then, then you're hitting your router page. So what your the, the answer to your so the solution to your your problem is you need to configure hairpin NAT on your router. So on most routers, and I, you didn't specify the make and model. If you did, I, I, we could dig in for you and, and maybe get you some some step by step instructions. But um, essentially, what you're looking to do is tell that router, hey, when you receive a request on the inside of this network looking for this public IP address, let's go ahead and hand it back to us, Haas, because we are that network and we expect that traffic and we want that to happen. Now, in something like a PFSense box or an OpenSense box, hairpin net is going to happen for you automatically. In the case of something like Microtech or some of the Cisco gear, you set that up. Um, but there is a process to doing that. Now, you're on to something with DNS. So this is another way that we've gotten around that. Sometimes hairpin net for uh, security reasons or for other reasons aren't. The, the the facility won't let you do it. And in those situations, we do use DNS. And DNS, using a DNS solution would look something like this. On your public DNS server, they go to, let's just say, co.michaelschurch.org. And CO Central Office resolves to the public IP address. Okay, good, we're good. When we're inside of the church, we run a local DNS server. Now, it's not enough just to spin up a local DNS server and add the entries. You also have to make sure that your DHCP server is handing that DNS server out as the DNS server to its clients. So we've done that. We've set up a DNS server. We've given it a local internal IP. We've created a record that says when we're inside the building, co.michaelschurch.org resolves to and then the internal IP address of your next cloud server. In this way, when your staff are working outside of the church, they go to co.michaelschurch.org, resolves them to the public IP. When they're inside the church, they go to co.michaelschurch.org, it resolves them to the internal IP address. But great question. Thanks for writing in. Our Christmas gift ideas. I, I, instead of doing picks this week, we're doing Christmas gift ideas. And I've got some. We've kind of organized them from least expensive to most expensive. And I want to take a moment to explain why we do this. It's not just, hey, here's a list of stuff and you could go out and buy them. There, there's a reason behind this. People are more generous 
around Christmas. They just are. And you see that everywhere from things like people ringing the Salvation Army bell to uh, big box stores and and grocery stores taking donations uh, for charitable causes. You just find people being more generous. And we at Ask Noah want to encourage you to do that. People call into this program all year round and ask for suggestions, career suggestions and and tech suggestions. And they're generally looking for advice. And when you have a council of a lot of people, you find wisdom. And so that's what this community seeks to offer. So here's the best advice I can give you during the Christmas season. Be generous. Be outrageously generous. Encourage generosity to those around you. Encourage generosity to the people that you like and be generous to the people that you don't like. Be generous to people that you don't even know. And so a unique way that we can help you be generous is if you have a tech geek in your life or maybe you get maybe you get that question, right? As the tech geek, maybe you get the question, hey, what can I buy you? What what can I you're a hard person to shop for? Well, here's the answer. You give them a link to this podcast and say, hey. If you want to be generous and you want to be generous to geeks, here's an idea. And we've tried to hit uh, a wide uh, budget variety. So there are two ways that I think that you can purchase things in life. The first way is the buy it for life method. That is, we research, we find the absolute best way to do a thing. We buy the thing one time, we take very good care of it, and we have it for the rest of our life. And that is my favorite way to buy stuff. And I have a lot of things that I would consider buy it for life things, and I really enjoy buying things that way. The second way, is what I call the Harbor Freight Method. The Harbor Freight Method works something like this. You go and buy a thing, at, and it's a cheap thing, and you know it's a cheap thing. If the cheap thing breaks, if you use it, you use that cheap thing up, then you go and buy the Buy It For Life version. If, on the other hand, you buy the cheap thing, and it just continues to serve you well, there really is no reason to buy the Buy It For Life thing. Sometimes cheap is good enough. Other times, you want the high-quality thing. And so we've got lists from both categories, but just to kind of give you some idea of the methodology that we went through, we put this list together. That's kind of how, that's kind of how we looked at it. So first up on the list at $59.62 is, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, the UG, U-G-E-E, graphics tablet, the M708 drawing tablet. Now, this is a Linux native compatible tablet. It was actually sent in to us by Charlie Brown. And, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So it has the, it connects over USB and it has a drawing service, but then you've got buttons on the side that you're able to actually do the drawing and looking into it a little further, this can actually be used for doing things like recording signatures and stuff. And so if you have a business and you perhaps need to get a uh, capture a customer's signature, you're able to do that. And they, they have a pressure sensitive pen that comes with it, um, Obviously, has uh, it works natively inside of Linux. It is ten, I believe, ten point six inches uh, wide to kind of give you an idea. But at sixty bucks, if you're looking for a generic plug and play thing, this is the kind of thing that you can get your kids. You can encourage them to be creative and to do something and create something and build something with technology, as opposed to just uh, what can this thing do for me. So. The UG tablet is $59.62 available on Ally Express. We'll have a link for you to all of this stuff in the show notes at podcast.asnoahshow.com. Up next is the 
Satachi 75-watt dual-type-C charger. This comes in at $69.99. Now, here's what I like about this. 75 watts dual-type-C port. So here's what this means. You take this device and you put it inside of your backpack or your computer bay. Now you have the ability to pull this thing out and plug your laptop in and charge it. Plug your tablet in and charge it. Plug your cell phone in and charge it. And if you're following what the rest of the world is doing with Type-C, as we become more and more standardized on that single power connector, it makes sense to have one unit that can charge all of the things. And I've tried a bunch of different Type-C adapters. We've talked about them over the years on the show. But the Satachi 70-watt dual Type-C power supply is the only one... Well, it, I'd say it's probably tied with the RAV power, but one of my one of my absolute favorite dual type C devices. And unlike the RAV power, this one is consistently available. So it's the Satachi uh, 75 watt dual C power supply. You're going to get two type C ports. You get two regular USB ports, and then you get a figure eight cord. So it looks like a traditional laptop power supply. But you're going to get a lot more outputs. And I have absolutely plugged in two laptops. As long as you don't have two really beefy laptops, it will charge two of them. No problem. Our third one, this our third pick, this is a little out in left field, but if you have a nerd in your life that can benefit from this, this is the kind of thing that you will get at the Ask Noah show and you will not find on any little top 10 gifts for your tech geek or whatever. It is the hardened industrial gigabit PoE injector. Now, what makes this device uh, unique, and it's from Heretta, the, 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 what makes this device unique, in my opinion, is that it has the ability to take input voltage from anywhere from 12 to 48 volts DC. Why is that significant? It's significant because it means you can power this off of a traditional car battery or if you have some sort of a solar setup. So if you're living out in an RV or if you do a lot of camping or if you're into sustainable living, all of those things might say, hey, I want to, you know, I want to harvest the energy that comes out of the nuclear reactor that's in the sky. And I want to use that to power my PoE access point or my PoE switch or whatever it is that you have that can power PoE, camera, whatever, right? This device for $129.99, available on Amazon.com, allows you to feed it with anywhere from 12 to 48 volts. And then it outputs a standard 802.3 AF PoE. And it'll, it can do devices up to 30 watts. So, an absolute must-have if you're using alternative power to get PoE. Now, going up the list, I have a couple of things. Again, these are kind of organized in price order, but there's a category of if you're working from home. Obviously, COVID means that a lot of us that weren't working from home are working from home, and a lot of us, even before COVID, were working from home, and so we've got some things in here for those of you that are our keyboard warriors from home. First up, at $139.99 is the Gator Frameworks. Now, technically, this device is a utility table that was originally designed for musicians, for putting equipment up or putting keyboards on. I have found this to be a fantastic desk, and you can pair it with a regular desktop, or in my case, I just use a piece of plywood, but you, it folds up and fits into the back of my compact car, and I can take it with me. And so, if if you're a traveling salesperson, if you are a traveling tech person, if you are a person that works in technology and does a lot of support, but you have a large campus, and so you work from a lot of different areas, this is a way that you can take a nice workstation with you and have your laptop and have a monitor and have a docking station and have all the things that you would have if you were set up at home and take those with you everywhere because the whole thing collapses down. So it goes anywhere from 26 to 44 inches and folds down and, and easily fits in the backseat of a car or in a trunk. 
At 144.99 available on Amazon, it's the SMSLDAD18. So I see all the time people try to come up with really creative ways to get computer speakers. And I've, I rarely come across a set of computer speakers. I'm like, that really sounds good. Some of them are better than others, but none of them are really great. Well, the SMSL AD18 Hi-Fi Stereo Amplifier at 144 bucks will give you Bluetooth connectivity, will give you 3.5 inch connectivity. You can pair it with some bookshelf speakers uh, or, or little satellite speakers, whatever you prefer. And this is a much better way. It's a much cleaner, more uh, uh, more quality way to get good audio out of your computer. And with these days with people listening to music off of their computer so much, uh, it's a great way to go. And you can pair your phone to it or have a little 3.5 inch uh, jack to plug in. But I, when people ask me, say, hey, I want good computer speakers, this is what we recommend. Grab one of these amplifiers. Let's grab some satellite speakers and plug it in. It's going to sound way better than anything you can buy in a big box store. At 162.47, also available from Amazon.com, it's the UEI Test Instruments DL479. So, in short, it's a multimeter, but it's one of the one of the only non-fluke multimeters that's a reasonable price that's worth having. Um, so it'll do up to 600 amps. But if you're doing little scientific projects or you're measuring voltage or playing around in your house, this is a meter that you might want to check out. At $169.99, it's the Klein Scout Pro 3. Now, this is a test kit for data and voice. So essentially, they give you little tiny ends that are numbered, and you plug them in either at the other end of your patch cable, or if you're putting wiring in your house, you can put it there. And it will create a tone that you can go back to the rack room and, and tone out. You can also test cables to find out if they're working, if they're not working. It'll show you things like PUE wire, voltage, that kind of thing. And at 170 bucks, if you do any work at all in networking or you're thinking about getting into networking, this is absolutely a device that you're going to want to have. At 599 it's the Uplift sit-stand desk. Now, this is I, I tried to explain my rationale for how I make the decision to purchase things because this is one of those things where you have to understand, yes, it's $600. It's completely worth $600. Okay. The uplift standing desk has, is, is kind of the standard. That's what they're recommending at Google when, when they sent those guys home. And I bought one from my house when COVID first hit and I could not be happier with this thing. Steve also has one. He really likes it. Um, they make them in a variety of different layouts, a variety of different colors. So you can really, there's, the, the, your imagination and your budget is the limit. But 599 will get you into one of these bad mamma jammas and they are built well. I have no doubt that this will be the desk that lasts me the rest of my life. At $1,000. Now, this kind of gets into the, oh, that would be really nice if money were no object kind of thing. But there might be somebody out there, right? It's the Greenlee 591 Portable Blower Fishing System. So this is really cool. It is a vacuum uh, blower system that comes with little, uh, basically, styrofoam mice. And what you do is you want to get a cable from one end of a conduit or one end of a tube to the other. You tie a piece of pull string onto this device, onto one of the mice. You put it into the blower. And you turn the blower on and it will blow this little piece of styrofoam, pull your pull string uh, all the way down. I have a brother-in-law who's an electrician. He said he has used this system to blow uh, pull string 3,000 feet uh, through 90s, the whole nine yards. So 1000 bucks, check that out. And finally, at $2,000, the Yeti Portable Power Station. 
two grand, but what this gets you is a 1500 watt portable lithium ion battery emergency power station. And so if you, again, if you're into the camping sustainable energy, any of those things and you want the ability to plug in a type C device, Anderson power pool device, regular 12 volt device, regular AC device, the Yeti power station, they make them in all sorts of sizes, but the 2000 watt is kind of, it's kind of the sweet spot for me. Absolutely a fantastic way to get power where you need to get power, anytime, any place. A couple of weeks ago, we started the discussion of moving AltaSpeed over to our own internal data center. We have been hosting everything on DigitalOcean, and it just got to the point where the cost, just the juice isn't worth the squeeze. And so we looked at renting some space in the data center. We've done that, and now we've continued to iterate on that process to try to figure out exactly how we're going to do this. So obviously... When you have access to somebody like Steve Ovens, you take advantage of his expertise because this is literally what this man does every other day of the week. He helps people identify these solutions. But part of it I'm learning is asking the right questions. And that's really the big uh, problem that people have is a lot of times we get stuck on a vague idea and then a technology which we're going to do to use to implement this vague idea. When you do this... This often leads to technical debt. You're much better off to kind of slow things down and start really trying to tease out what we're actually trying to achieve. And in the case of businesses, you're trying to get to the heart of what is the business driver for this? Why are you trying to achieve this? Is it, you know, better uptime? You know, in, in this case, it sounds like we've got a monetary driver to move from one data center to another. Um, and what kind of impacts that will have. So instead of saying, well, we're going to roll towards this technology, in this case, containers, you should be asking yourself, what is the business driver for this? Why do you want to move to containers? Are you trying to deploy faster? Are you looking for, you know, in some cases, moving to Kubernetes because it provides you a better way to do infrastructure as code? There's all kinds of questions that need to be answered in order to tease out what the proper technology for the tasks are. And to do that, you really need to nail down what the tasks you're trying to achieve are. So I guess I would tell you that the three things we want to accomplish with this project are first, we want to be consistent with our values. If we go into a client and tell them that we believe that they should own their own data, that they should host their own infrastructure, and that we're happy to help them do that, it would be inconsistent then for us not to host our own data and help ourselves do that. And so to a degree, we do that, right? Because we're just renting the servers from DigitalOcean and we are managing them and those kinds of things. But once we get it into the data center, uh, that opens up two additional possibilities. The first is we're able to reduce our hosting costs. And the, the, the third reason is it will allow us to grow into hosting services for other people because we have the infrastructure to do that properly we want to kind of continue down the path of not so much solutioning, but continuing to think through what we are planning to move, how we're planning to move it, what kind of resourcing do we have? And when I say resourcing for the people that aren't familiar with the business lingo, this can be, of course, you know, my actual servers. But in this case, I'm referring to what are, what does our staffing look like? What is our expertise in? 
what where are we weak at what kind of soft spots are we going to have when we're doing this kind of migration because as we kind of talked about last time we're really talking about a couple of different projects going on at the same time kind of getting conflated you're doing a data center migration and you're also doing uh, like a a shedding of technical debt right i last time i used the term modernization but really what you're looking to achieve is a cleanup of your processes because uh, the way that digital ocean works and the way that you manage things there is fundamentally going to be different than doing it on premise and so with that you're going to have to change your processes and for for good or for bad you're going to end up changing significant ways of which you you got used to dealing with things so let's if we uh, i'll let i'll let kind of you ask the questions on on what we should be thinking about but when it comes to the actual data center migration so far our plan is this steve we want to have we've we've budgeted and planned for two virtual hosts uh both dell r540s and they'll be running overt those will be tied to an additional pair of dell r540s with a uh flashed in disk direct access so that we can use zfs with no ill effects they'll be running true nas and the idea there would be that if the primary virtual host and overt goes offline we immediately fail over to our backup virtual host if the primary server a storage server falls offline true nas we go to our backup true nas and then as a catch all we have a off-site server which is actually it's kind of backwards because it's on site at our office but the idea there is we have a 540 already that we're using and we could move to our, the inside of our office in the event that we totally lost the data center for some reason. So going off of uh, your previous suggestions, we nixed trying to get everything into containers and all of that. And we, we thought we'll just start with VMs. We'll migrate off of DigitalOcean into the AltaSpeed data center, start with websites, get our internal services like OS Ticket, NextCloud and CFile and so on and so forth then move on to the more complicated, more uh, network-intensive things like VoIP and video. So generally speaking, uh, this this approach sounds pretty good to me. Uh, you usually want to start with if you have stateless apps, uh, so things that, that go and fetch and return results without actually storing them. So Nextcloud, Cfile, and, and OS Ticket, those are stateful apps because... Um, while the Nextcloud front end, for example, could be considered stateless because it relies on the database in the back end, um, that would, in order to make this a, um, a proper containerized orca- orchestration, you would end up having to split the front end away and the database and perhaps even um, some PHP caching because Nextcloud does significantly better if you have uh, some layer of caching in front of it. And so you really have to start thinking about um, what components make up the things. And so when I was saying you're trying to do too much at once, that's part of what I'm talking about. You can't just take Nextcloud and throw it in a container and call it good. You can do this in a home situation because you're not necessarily worried about performance or the longevity of your database. But I have to imagine that you're going to be running next cloud with some sort of database like Postgres or MySQL or uh, MariaDB or whatever. And if you're doing that, you definitely are not putting those in the same container. And this is part of what I'm talking about. If you 
just that one application alone, trying to lift that out of a VM and drop it into containers, you're going to have at least two, probably three uh, containers. And then you're going to have to figure out how to make sure that they all get connected and they have their storage properly and all of the rest of that. Uh, not least of which has to do with certificates and how do you deal with certificates and containers. So that's a perfect example of why you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't migrate and separate at the same time. So what kind of questions do we need to be asking for just the VM to VM migration? Or is that straightforward enough? It's just, Hey, you're not using DigitalOcean anymore. Now you're using overt. Go have fun, children. So a lot of the stuff that you're going to be interested in are um, how is the physical situation set up? Do you have different racks? How are they cabled? You know, uh, we kind of touched on this um, a little bit last time. We probably don't want to dive into that too deep because some of that nitty gritty can be boring. But, you know, you want to make sure that you're in this case, you have two virtual hosts. Hopefully they have two power supplies. Those, the, both of those power supplies are going to different UPSs in different racks and so on, like on different circuits and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. You have to make sure that kind of infrastructure is really squared away because you are giving up a layer of, um, resiliency that you get with a digital ocean where it can kind of slide around. You're moving from who knows how many servers that this could potentially slide between if they have problems to two servers, right? And there's some level of downtime that can happen even just migrating between two servers. So you wouldn't want to have both of these servers sitting in the same rack uh, on the same switch, on the same power grid, like on the same circuit, because those are all single points of failure that will take down both of these machines at the same time. So there's there's a bunch of things you need to think about. Um, I would say you also want to think about the network connectivity, because again, you're loading up a couple of hosts with, I don't know how many VMs at this point, and I don't think that we have a good handle on that yet as a, as a team. And you're going to be thinking about, okay, do I need four NICs and do I need to have them bonded? Um, do I, am I going to do kind of four, four NICs in a lag or am I going to do active passive? All of these sorts of things will, are questions that you'll have to start asking yourself because you need to know, okay, is one 10 gig NIC going to be sufficient for what we're doing? Because there's all kinds of things like some things will be latency sensitive. Some things are throughput sensitive and you need to start thinking through all of that because you've, you're dumping all of this load onto two boxes and they're constrained by their physical ports. So I know that wasn't really a question, um, a little more of a monologue, but I guess that would be the first thing is like, have we begun to think about the physical connections? So when I'm, when I'm doing this sort of thing, I always say you start from the wall and move into the computer. So how many power, uh, like how many power supplies does it have? Are they in separate wall sockets on different, different circuits? You know, that's kind of question number one. Um, I don't know. Can you answer that question? Yeah, I can. So we have, it's all in one rack. So that's, I guess, a little bit less than ideal. But within the rack, we have two entirely separate, uh, power circuits. One is the A side, one is the B side. Um, in our meeting with the data center, I understand that they have two entirely separate UPSs on each side of the building. So even if one were to catch on fire, 
I'm told it's very unlikely that one catching on fire or something bad happening to one could ever affect the other. And both the A and the B side come into the rack. As far as network considerations, each 510 will have four 10 gigabit NICs in there. We're planning on connecting them with TwinX um, to do the interconnects. And the idea would be that there would be one, con- there, there'd be, uh, there are three ISPs that come into the data center, but as we talked about in the last episode, they, they it is all in one data center. So, you know, somebody's doing road maintenance, they sever all three, that's going to take us out. But past that point or barring that happening, we have three separate ISPs that are, are coming in. And so our connection, we'd have three separate connections to the world. Plus, we would have interconnections between the servers so that when you're moving, from, so for example, when the VMs, the disks will be stored on the storage server. So that would happen over its own dedicated uh, 10 gig NIC. As far as how many VMs, we have 28 altogether that we would like to run to start with um, and then grow from there. Do you have any way to do load testing or otherwise figure out you know, again, if you are saturating a 10 gig NIC, and I'm not even talking about, um, you know, I'm pulling down a, a two terabyte file and I'm saturating it that way, but uh, you have a certain number of interrupts to to be able to work with. So even if you've got plenty of headroom in terms of bandwidth, uh, you also have to think about who, which VMs can get access to the to the card, and uh, if you've got a VM that that does a ton of tiny little conversations that's going to impact everybody else. So uh, some things to think about are, do I know what kind of uh, network traffic this is going to put on a single host? If I'm going, you know, if I have only one connection back to the storage for all of them, uh, what happens if that cable breaks or, you know, that those are, these are the sorts of things that you need to think about because if you've only got one connection back to your um back to your storage array, it may seem absurd, but I can absolutely tell you that I have been at very large clients where the cabling, all it took was the cabling to get knocked. And because there was so much activity on the copper wire, the copper wire in there essentially disintegrated. So the cable was fine. Somebody accidentally bumped it with the elbow and then we lost all connectivity and nothing came out of the socket. It was just because the cable got brittle from all of the, all of the traffic that was there. Now, if you're using fiber, obviously, that's not much of a concern, but these are the types of things that you might consider because you have some business critical applications going on here. So we could fairly trivially put uh, SFP cards in the back of the servers and run it over fiber. How many connections would you suggest? How many interconnects would you suggest from, let's say, the 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 virtual host to the storage array? Again, you can't really guess at that until you actually go and put load on these things, right? I have a number of VMs, but I don't know, um, you know, a static website's not going to hit the, the backend storage very much, whereas the next cloud database, for example, might hit that quite a bit. Um, if you're talking about that 10 gig link has to also um, be involved with migrating the VMs around because you've got, you're doing overt. And I assume that there's going to be some level of replication or something that's happening. Um, there's all kinds of things that you need to consider. I, I can't give you a good answer to that because I don't have enough insight into these 28 VMs and what they're doing. 
So let's talk about load testing a little bit. So we've started that process. We're not very far into it. We have a single server that we drove down to the data center and we racked it. And the idea there was just to start getting some hands-on experience so we could see, you know, we spin C file up. How much bandwidth does it take up and how does that work? And so at the moment, what we're doing is we're running each VM and we're uh, so we, you know, we run a VM, look at what, how it's performing, what it's doing, what it's drawing. Does it work well on the server? And we're doing one at a time. I suppose the the second step would be we would start to stack those up and okay, here are the ones that we think are going to be a little bit more intensive. We're going to run, uh, we're going to run multiple of these at a time. Now, part of why we wanted to start with these first 28 VMs is because this is the stuff that we use internally. So the good news is our load is really only eight users and the highest bandwidth thing that we'll be using is C file. Cause it's not uncommon for us to move 40 or 50 gigs sometimes. Um, so, so, so that happens. And so, and that, that's where we started with. We have C file running in the data center today, um, just to try it to see how that works. But a lot of the, a, a lot of those 28 VMs are things like, uh, internal websites, you know, the, again, like wikis and stuff like that. OS ticket, you know, it, 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 it takes a VM. It has to run, but it's very, very lean. It doesn't really do much. It's essentially every once in a while responding to an email or, or, uh, editing, uh, you know, the knowledge base kind of a thing. Um, so it, it's, it seems like it's, it would be fa- a fairly low ask to run those sorts of things. And after we got our head wrapped around the low bandwidth, low resource stuff, that's when we'd start to move into the more complicated stuff like VoIP and video, which will be, uh, very dependent on network speed and stuff like that, but also a lot more complexity when we start getting into, well, we're going to pull all these 1080p video streams from all of these clients and bring them back into a hosted NVR. Um, there's a lot more network consideration that would go in there. But um, do you have a, do you have a, a way that you would go about testing load of these VMs on the server, or would you just say, Hey, load it up and see how it runs and, and then go from there. Is there a more structured way to do that test? Yeah, there's, there's uh so because you have no driver behind this, except for yourself, like you don't have a corporate deadline that's pushing you out of the data center mm. and you already have some okay metrics coming out of DigitalOcean, right? You can go back and kind of historically look for peaks. I'm not sure how fa- far back their um, their metrics go for you, but you're not going at this completely blind because you've been running this stuff in production. You know, you can get a good handle at where where you're at ish because again, they're going to be running on different hardware than you are, so there's going to be some lost in translation, but it'll give you a pretty darn good. Uh, guess as to how things are. If you find that DigitalOcean's um, metrics are not sufficient for you in terms of they're not exposing what what you might look for, um, latency, throughput, you know, um, overall peaks and stuff like that, you could go through the process of installing. I'm going to say Prometheus just because that's the one I'm familiar with. But pick your um, metrics of choice and start logging your metrics and keep them for a while um, and Again, because you have no driver other than your own self, your best bet is to actually use the live data. In terms of putting load against things, there are absolutely um, frameworks that out there that help you do this. Um, so there are testing frameworks like Selenium or 
I can't think of any of the load testing ones off the top of my head, but there are actually frameworks out there that will help you with this. And essentially, you can go in there and, and tweak some parameters and say, okay, this is what our, our production is, so run two times the production value, which is generally what I would suggest. You want to go at least double your load um, because you don't know how things are going to act and interact. Like this thing is taking half a CPU core in production by itself, but I throw this on the same hypervisor with this other thing that has a ton of interrupts, and now that that um, half a core is not sufficient because the CPU is busy serving other clients on the same host. So there's a lot of stuff that can impact you meaning you can't just take individual metrics from one VM and then add the next VM in and so on and and have a really clear picture. It's a good start, but you can't you can't base your sizing based on what you're currently using. You have to go at least 2x to give yourself that kind of headroom for any kind of performance things you didn't end up catching. What kind of frameworks all do these software test? I mean, is it network? Is it CPU? Is it disk? Does it do all of the above? It depends on how you configure it. So generally speaking, there are people out there that are much better at doing the QA than I am. I would say that um, a good person to speak with would probably be Michael Dominic from the Coda Radio Show because he's pretty big into having a QA team. And I bet you that he would have some better insights into um, how to accurately profile your applications that you're looking to move over. Uh, be, be interesting if we could have a quick chat with him. Uh, but notwithstanding that, it kind of gets a little bit outside of my depth because I help more with the planning than the execution side of, of a lot of these types of activities. You've mentioned the, the word interrupt. What is an interrupt and how do you plan for it? How do you, so uh, let, me rephrase, sorry, if, let me rephrase. How, how do you identify it, and then how do you plan to fix it? That, that was my question. So an interrupt is essentially when a, a computer has to um, switch its focus, right? So a network can have an interrupt, a CPU can have an interrupt, and what that is is just simply you can think of it like context switching for a human being, right? You're doing a task. Someone knocks on your door, you stop, you, you deal with the person at your door and you go back to your task. That is equivalent to be, to having an interrupt. If you have something that's super chatty and interrupting all the time, that will cause a ripple effect across your host because the CPU is so busy dealing with a lot of these tiny tasks that it can't get back to the thing that it was trying to do. Um, so you, you can't really deal with interrupts so much. Like if the, if you are writing your own application, you could absolutely do something to reduce the number of interrupts that your application is causing. If you're consuming somebody else's from an outside vendor, you just kind of have to deal with, with, um, what is given to you in terms of CPU or NIC or all these other sort of things. There's various tasks that you can do, like you can pin it to a specific CPU core or set of cores so that, um, those are not going to be used other places for network cards. Um, you tend to make sure, again, that you're passing through a specific network card. There is a um, a function out there of specific network cards called SRIOV. And what this is, is where it takes your network card, your physical network card, and virtualizes it 
But it, what it can do is essentially do little tiny, it basically creates virtual network cards out of one giant network card. Um, but it's, it's very performant because essentially it's getting, it's passing only a part of the network card into the VM. And this is very popular with, um, telcos and things like that because it allows them to have humongous NIC cards, throw them into a VM and then kind of partition that network card and pass that partition directly in as if it was passing in a flat out hardware device. Now, hopefully I didn't, uh, kind of lose you on that no no not at all steve what kind of problems should we be thinking about that you haven't heard me mention what are some of the most common problems that you see bite people that go to roll out something into a mission critical production well backups are a big one um they they can really bite you and not just the fact that you're doing a backup but you're not testing the backup um, so I like to tell this story of a client where um, I was on site and they were running their backups. The cron jobs are running. The corporate backup software is running. Everything looks hunky-dory. But nobody was actually trying to restore the backups anytime. And something had changed in one of the software that they were backing up. And it was no longer backing up what they thought they were backing up. So they open up this tarball. So I was, I was doing a, an audit for them and I'm looking at the sizes. I'm like, Oh, well, on, I don't know. I'm just going to say July 23rd, the date of the tarball changed. What's going on here? Open up the tarball, nothing inside this one. And you saw, so I, with, from that, I was able to go back to them and say something changed on this date. And while you're taking backups, I can't actually restore them because my section of the backup is corrupted. Um, so. It's not just enough to take the backup. You actually have to go and apply it somewhere. Um, and if you're really organized, you're going to do that in an automated process where you have a VM. Either, either you spin up a VM and have this process done kind of automatically for you, or you have some sort of uh, thing like Argo CD or Jenkins or something to that effect where you have a job and you click like test backup and it spins up a VM and installs the software and then tries to restore the backup somewhere else. Um, that's a pretty big one. So please tell me no, Steve, but this is where we're trying to use Ansible. And so the, the, the general process that we're, we're going down is we ideally we would have it set up to where Ansible does Everything, everything is a playbook. And so we're doing nothing by hand. And so it would look something like this. The, the, you have a, a rel box and it has a kickstart file and that spins up and gets Ansible up and running. Ansible pulls down its, uh, its playbooks. It goes with, uh, OCS inventory system, reaches out and says, who's all on the network? Okay. I found out who's here. So you are the virtual host. Here's your, here, here's how we set you up and goes and does the thing. And you, that process starts out and you just walk away from it. And when you come back, all of the stuff is rebuilt. And because of the way that Ansible handle, handles uh, errors and offers helpful suggestions on how to fix that, we can test it and say, okay, this entire process kicks off and works without us touching it. We're good. Or, Oh, here is the stumbling block. This is where we're going to have to stop. We got to figure out what is breaking here and, and go back and do that. Does that seem like a reasonable way, um, 
well, I, I guess so. I want to ask if that's reasonable, but then the, the, the second follow up question to that is what kind of process or software do you recommend for actually doing the backup? We've explored Barrow S, but haven't looked much beyond that. Backups are challenging because it depends on what you're backing up. Like for databases, for example, you're going to want to use Postgres dump for that. You're going to want to go, going to want MySQL dump for MySQL and so on. Because you don't want to just take, despite what um, a lot of people say, where I just take a snapshot of my ZFS data pool and or, um, and restore that or pull out of that, you can do that. You really should be uh, making an actual backup of your database in the event that you need to dump and restore it somewhere else um, that may not have ZFS or um, you need to test it somewhere. Or a very common thing is, to need to have a subset of maybe live data to do your testing on. Now, you're not a development shop necessarily, so that might not apply to you. But um, for doing the backups, you're going to still be in a situation where even if you're using Ansible, and, and there's nothing to say that you shouldn't use Ansible, you're going to be making a lot of um essentially giant if statements, like if I'm backing up MySQL, do this. If I'm doing this, do that kind of thing so that you're using the appropriate tools for doing the backup. Um, to your question of should I be using Ansible for all the things, um, I would say a qualified yes, absolutely. Um, the qualification is how are you managing Ansible? Are you using something like the open source project AWX? Are you using Red Hat's Ansible Tower? Are you using Ansible Core and just running it on the command line? Are you storing and or logging the runs of Ansible? How are you kicking them off? Does someone actually have to go and poke Ansible? Are you using a cron job? Um, are you, you know, do you have some glorified script that somebody has to run? Are you running it in a pipeline? Uh, all of these sorts of things are, are of important, um, let's say they're good decision points to be speaking of because they all impact how agile you are, how easily you can implement something called like self-healing, how well you can store things in source control, all of these sorts of things. Uh, could you explain a little bit more about what you mean by self-healing? How would that work and what would be some examples of how you would implement that? So uh, self-healing is is exactly what it sounds like. The idea behind self-healing is that I encounter a known problem and I have already defined a solution for that. And I go ahead and allow the computer to say, hey, I've hit this condition. This condition looks like that condition. So I'm going to take these sort of steps. So an easy one is you end up having like, let's say X11 forwarding happening. And we know every once in a while that it gets stuck. So, and the process to that is just to go in and restart the systemd service file. So I got stuck. Okay. I, I've registered that I've got a stuck. I wait some back off time of like two minutes. I try again. I'm still stuck. Go ahead and restart the service. Check again. Okay. It's running. That would be an, a, a situation where the system has self healed because you didn't have to take any kind of remediation. How often would you test the backups? You spoke about making sure that you, you test them. I'm assuming that one time isn't good enough because something may break 
after the test. So how often would you go back and double check those things to make sure they're still working correctly? That depends on what it is that you're testing for and how often there's churn in your environment. So I'll take Home Assistant as an example. I actually do have two different instances of Home Assistant where I restore from one to the other. Now, I don't actually use the second one to run the house, but I do make sure, did it restore my backup? You know, Are my automations the way I thought they did? All of those sorts of things. And I, I may even go so far as to plug an extra Z-Wave stick into it just to make sure that you know I can still see the things I see. I don't do this when, for example, um, I'm just making a change to my automation. I absolutely do this when I am considering a major upgrade where, so Home Assistant releases every month. I might not update every month because of, you know, very different reasons. Like I'm tracking some right now. I'm tracking a bug in some integration that I use and it has forced me to stay on the September release. So when I actually go and upgrade to say January 2022, I absolutely will take my last backup full and then go dump it on my spare box and make sure that everybody comes up so that if this goes sideways, I have a, uh, I know that I have a good fallback place. Now, obviously that's a very manual process. Lots of places will actually do this on like a, a monthly or a quarterly basis where they do an automated test where, um, they actually put, I don't want to say put files because that's, that's kind of a dumb test, except if you're just, um, checking to see if you can extract a tarball, but lots of places will have something where, for example, MySQL is a really easy one. They do a MySQL dump, they restore it, and then they run a query against it. And Ansible can do all of that sort of stuff. It takes a database, dumps it, like spins up a container, puts the database in the container, runs a query against it. I got the response, shuts everything back down, backup's good. And you would automate that. Uh, well, you, yeah, I guess you said. So, um, what are some other things that we should be considering? Or again, what I'm really interested in, Steve, is my blind spots, right? Like the questions that I know how to ask or the questions that I am asking, even if I didn't have the answer today, I can eventually arrive at it. The part that concerns me is my perspective. I only see part of it. Where are my blind sides? What am I missing? Yeah, so... I think we've we've started to highlight some of that already. I think we've teased out a bunch of that, especially last time where we were technology focused instead of um, objective focused. So mm. I think removing that blinder has been a big benefit for you. Like you came back and you, you've really thought through a bunch of this stuff. You've had some solid answers for me. Um, I think uh, aside from like you're going to have to do testing and load testing. And I think that's a blind spot because we don't, we don't, as a group, don't really know how to do that, that load testing. Okay. And I think that'll be difficult. Um, because that directly impacts your success here. If you load everything up one at a time and it's all great. And then you load up the 28th VM and everything comes crashing down because, you know, we didn't account for something. That's a blind spot. And the only way you can do that is, is really have a solid testing plan in place. And, those are hard. Like most people can't just say, here's your testing plan. They can give you a running start at it and definitely give you good pointers. But a lot of that becomes, I don't want to say trial and error necessarily, but um, it is born from experience. How about I say that? 
So we need to get some real world testing done. Let me ask you this, Steve. Is there any value in taking before we, because I mean, it's going to be a pretty big check, you know, when we go to purchase these servers. Is there, is there any value in taking older servers and saying, well, let's just see what happens if we take some older servers and try to run the workload on it that we want to. And if it works well on those servers, then we, we can, we can fairly well estimate that if we have newer servers with more resources available, we'll be way good. Or is that too so much there guessing? Is value in that. No, there's value in that. But, but the caution there is, um, when you are not dealing with a similar architecture. So, you know, you're jumping a generation or two in the CPU or something of that nature. Uh, you can end up having, uh, bugs that you didn't encou- encounter before. So I'll give you a, a really ch- quick one. I uh, had a client that did something similar like this. Uh, but their new fancy stuff had brand new SSDs and the firmware was, was less than ideal. And we threw the stuff on this brand new thing and it performed worse. What the heck's going on? You know, we thought we had it all ironed out. It took us quite a while. We got the vendor involved. They issued a firmware patch and everything was good. So that only is applicable if you can make sure that you are kind of staying within some known boundaries, there's definitely value in it, right? I don't want to, I don't want to take that away from you, but it's not the, there is no silver bullet to this. You just, Mm. you basically have to, we always tell our clients, you must, you must, you must have an environment exactly like prod or as close to it as you can get. And you do your testing there. But what I'm hearing is it's an, it's an okay thing and, and, and probably a good idea to first try, learn as much as we can about what the potential obstacles are before we write these big checks after if all of that clears that's like stage one of r&d then we can write the checks buy the stuff stage two of r&d is trying it on the actual production stuff okay that seems to work great too now we go and try to break it we're restoring backups and hey this failed and, and hey let's make some stuff fail and see it and, and ensure that we have a plan to accommodate for all of those things. So the the path that we're following here in that regard is what we would call, um, in in the industry, we call this a POC, so proof of concept. The proof of concept turns into a pilot. The pilot turns into dev. Dev turns into production. So the POC is like, can I stand it up and does this thing meet some level of minimum requirement? The pilot is, okay, Let's actually start doing some tests and make sure that this seems stable. The, the dev is let's get our internal users on here, get some developers, you know, tinkering away on this or, you know, sysadmins depends on what it is, but you want to get the actual end users involved in this. And then prod it's yeah, get ready for prod. Don't break it. We know what we're doing at this point. Steve, it sounds like I've got my homework. It sounds like I've got my next steps lined out. So I think this is going to warrant a part three discussion and we'll have to continue to iterate on, on, on the knowledge that we've built here. Hey, if people have questions, we invite that, right? Maybe there's somebody else listening to this and saying, you know, I'm going through this at work or maybe I'm a few steps ahead of Noah in where we are. And, and here's the things that we're up against or some of the questions that we have. Maybe it's the opposite side. I'm not interested in doing it for a company or for hosting or for business critical stuff, but I've always thought it would be fun to run this in my home lab. 
We welcome those questions. If you send them to live at asknoahshow.com, we can start to churn through it, and you might spur an idea or a question that we hadn't answered or hadn't thought of. Make sure to send those in. Participate in the discussion. And the music in our ears means we're out of time. Hey, a huge thanks to all of you that participate and listen to the Ask Noah show from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for listening to us in 2021. We'll be back next Tuesday with the Ask Noah show live every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. Merry Christmas.